In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, send forth your Son, we pray, to lead home his bride, the Church, that with all the company of the redeemed, we may finally enter into his eternal wedding feast. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Our Bible verse, the same as last week, 2 Timothy 3.15. It is on the board or in the congregation at prayer. Let us speak it together. From childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And as we noted last Sunday, Paul's reference to the Holy Scriptures here most especially refers to the Old Testament Scriptures, which Timothy learned as a boy, and those Old Testament Scriptures are all about Christ, able to make us wise to salvation through faith in Him. It corresponds with the first petition, particularly of the Lord's Prayer. The introduction is, Our Father, who art in heaven... And with these words, God tenderly invites us to believe that he is our true father and that we are his true children, so that with all boldness and confidence we may ask him, as dear children ask their dear father. And then I'll ask you, what is the first petition? Hallowed be thy name. What does this mean? God's name is certainly holy in itself, But we pray in this petition that it may be kept holy among us also. How is God's name kept holy? God's name is kept holy when the word of God is taught in its truth and purity, and we as the children of God also lead holy lives according to it. Help us to do this, dear Father in heaven. But anyone who teaches or lives contrary to God's word profanes the name of God among us. Protect us from this, Heavenly Father. So, each petition of the Lord's Prayer is first God's word. Therefore, every petition of the Lord's Prayer also carries with it a promise. You see this already with the introduction, our Father who art in heaven. That's God's word, so he wants to invite us through that word to believe that he is our true Father. It's got baptismal language there. We become children of God in our baptism. He invites us to believe this. And on the basis of that confidence, to cry out to him as dear children, would to their dear Father precisely because they trust in their Father. The first petition, the hallowing of God's name, which um, corresponds to a lot of what we've talked about in this family life and marriage retreat, the hallowing or sanctifying of our lives takes place in no other way but through the word of God. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, you hallow your name among us when your word is taught in its truth and purity 
and when we, as your dear children, also lead holy lives according to it. We give thanks to you for the gift of your word, for our pastors, parents, and others who teach it, and for the holy lives of all your faithful Christians who live according to it. Forgive us for the many ways in which we profane your holy name among us by failing to teach your word in its truth and purity, to pray for our pastors and teachers, or to lead holy lives. Protect us from false doctrine and evil living. Help all who are called to teach and preach your word to do so with faithfulness, and grant us to receive your word rightly, that our lives may be made holy by it. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Now, I've handed out a new sheet today, uh, the third part of this study, the problem of sin and its disordered and destructive impact on family, life, and marriage. The primary text is Ephesians 4, verse 29, through Ephesians 5, verse 7. As much as possible, I'm going to try to focus on a primary text for each topic underneath this study. So with that in mind, let me just have you look at here and read the text. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Notice the first petition. That would be to profane the name of God if a corrupt word came out of our mouth. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. So before reading on, what is the point of connection in verse 1 of chapter 5 when it says, be imitators of God? What has St. Paul just spoken about? Just look at the text. What has is, what is St. Paul just spoken about? Because he says, be imitators of God as dear children. Christ's forgiveness, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God. Do you see the question, as Christ forgave you, to be an imitator of God is to forgive as he has forgiven, which includes being kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So when you come upon these things in the New Testament, a chapter division does not mean a new thought. It's just an arbitrary, th th those were not inspired by the Holy Spirit. In fact, 
the end of chapter four connects inextricably to the beginning of chapter five. So if you just started out with be imitators of God as dear children, well, what does that really mean? If just as God and Christ punched you in the mouth, be imitators of God, punch other people in the mouth. I mean, see, so you, you, having the context is critically important. Okay, all right. So therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks." For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Now there's much... Uh, that we can discuss from this text. We'll have to um, finish up with it, no doubt, next week because of our short time this morning. The theses, however, are based, there's uh, really five of them on this page based upon this, and then covetousness, which is highlighted here in this pericope, also leads us into the ninth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. And the tenth, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. His manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Those texts are on the back page. But before going to thesis one, flip over to the back page. Thesis seven here, or statement seven, thinking about mental, physical, and spiritual health and well-being. So mental health and well-being, physical health and well-being, spiritual health and well-being. Consider the following topics based on the ninth and 10th commandments and these theses drawn out of the Ephesians text. And look at the topics. Cohabitation before marriage. What percentage of people are cohabitating and maybe never get married or cohabitating before marriage. Does anybody have an idea? A lot. It's well over 80%. Okay. In fact, um, pre-marital relations has become the accepted norm. Okay. So to dare to speak against it means you're full of hate Abortion. Now, it's interesting. Our country, according to surveys, has said they don't want to see abortion in the last trimester, maybe even the last six months. That would be barbaric, especially right up to the time of birth. However, 
that seems to be making uh, headway in elections, okay? Uh, as if abortion, the killing of babies is some sort of a right. Same-sex marriage, uh, right now, two men, two women can enjoy the quote-unquote blessing of a civil union according to a ruling by the Supreme Court. According to the uh, rationale behind that ruling, it will soon be able to be argued that polyamorous relationships are just as valid according to the argumentation that was used. Gender re-identification and or reassessment therapies and surgeries. Okay. Now, before going on to the other four, I want those first, four, the other two, those first four, when you consider those topics, and this is not to engage in them right now um, at great length, but when you look over those four topics listed there, is there anything that stands out into your mind about a common characteristic? Like, I am going to move in with my girlfriend, or she's going to move in with me, or I have this child that's not wanted because I had sexual relations and therefore I'm going to seek an abortion or I am going to unite with someone of my same sex because I have feelings for them or I don't like the way I am configured biologically I will choose either by mutilation, surgery, hormone therapy, a combination of both, or simply by reassigning my gender to be something that I am not biologically. Do you see any thread that runs through those four? All self-serving. All self-serving. That's what I wanted you to see. So the, the introverted self-serving nature of these, which means then there was one thing that Paul said in this pericope, chapter 4 and 5, that leads to the destruction of the soul ultimately. What was it? Did you pick it out of there? There's things that are characteristic of it, but one thing leads to destruction. Philip? Well, it can lead to that, but what is, he describes all of these things as being something. Okay, Alec has it, an idolater, an idol worshiper. So you see where it, it comes into play. Verse Three, fornication, all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be named among you, Christians, as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness, foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, now look at the who there, who is an idolater. So, idolatry is the issue, 
And so when we're talking about self-serving, who is the idol actually, Joanne? Yourself. Yourself. Your own will. So these other things are symptoms of idolatry or lead to full-blown idolatry, which is a rejection of Christ and of God. Okay? You read carefully these texts and you'll see these things. You wanna, this is yours to take home and to take notes on. You circle that who, who is an idolater. Because, let's face it, um, have you ever been tempted or engaged in, you don't have to raise your hand, any form of fornication? Have you ever been tempted to or engaged in any form of filthy speech? or coarse jesting, okay? Now, so this is not speaking about salvation by works, that if you avoid these things, then you have become sufficiently holy, but rather a disciple, everybody's a disciple of something or someone, okay? So the idolater is ultimately a disciple of himself, okay? One of the reasons why such things as fornication, uncleanness, covetousness scandalizes our conscience is because we're disciples of Jesus. So when we as disciples of Jesus have feelings, have accusations that trouble our conscience, it causes us great grief and sorrow, see? And then, uh, this is one of the reasons why the devil wants to tempt you, not because he particularly cares about specific sins, but he wants to destroy your confidence in Christ so that you then throw in the towel and become a disciple of whatever idol you want to worship. So he's warning about these things, fornication, uncleanness, uh, foolish talk, coarse jesting, and so forth, because to walk in those ways leads to the destruction of faith, ultimately. Okay? So he says, no one who practiced these things who is an idolater. That would indicate someone who either never has been a Christian or a Christian who has run their faith shipwreck by becoming a disciple of self, okay? Now, there's something else here, though. I said there were two other things on the list. A family without faith in Christ. Or members of a Christian family, putting cr Christian family in quotes, who harbor resentment. Um, I, I had contemplated giving statistics to you. For example, in the earlier list about cohabitation. That if you cohabitate before married, marriage, you're much more likely to have your, your marriage end in divorce. But you can also find explanations of the statistics 
that might say that that is not necessarily true, although overwhelmingly it seems to be. We as Christians, so, so I was tempted to give some of those statistics, or can something you'll relate to, that according to the statistics, those suffering with gender dysphoria who act upon it with mutilation surgeries, hormone therapies, sex change operations, whatever you want to call them, are much more likely to commit suicide. And statistics, again, would bear that out. But I decided not to dig up all of these surveys and statistics. Why? Steve? Yeah, it detracts from God's word. It's not as if, since the surveys show this, then God's word must be true. God's word is true regardless of what surveys teach. Because I know of a lot of people who are quite happy in their heterosexual um, marriage that lived together prior to that, but they never go to church. They're well-adjusted individuals, and they really couldn't care less about the Christian faith. So does that mean that the word of God is not true? So that's why I set aside those, uh, let's take a look at the surveys. Survey says, you know, I guess we could do that. <laughs> the other thing is these last two, a family without faith in Christ, I mean, that's what I'm talking about. But there are many good relationships where there's no faith in Christ. In fact, one of the things that troubles Christians is that you can have a Christian husband and wife and they have a troubled marriage and then you have a non-Christian husband and wife and they don't. So what is the gospel then? Let us abandon our faith because then we will have a happy marriage. Instead, rather... What is the devil always going to do? Attack what is good. Try to destroy faith. That is his MO. So if you're a non-Christian and a happy couple and you have no use for Jesus, praise the Lord. I mean, I, for him. The Lord being Satan. That's, he's accomplished that. Why bug them? Okay. Another aspect about these things, these last two on the bottom, is I think that there's a danger in tisk, tisk, tisk cohabitation, tisk, tisk, tisk abortion, tisk, tisk, tisk same sex marriage, tisk, tisk, tisk all of these things that come from gender dysphoria. I thank God I'm not like those people. But the last one, the last bullet there is significant. Members of a Christian family who harbor resentment. If you harbor resentment and you walk in resentment and the refusal to let go of the sins of others against you or their shortcomings or their failings or things you don't like about them, who is your God? Yourself. They're still the idol of self, okay? 
So when we go through these theses then, that we'll start here and then uh, finish them next time, Paul is talking to Christians. And he's warning Christians about the dangers in this world of darkness in which we live. And he used the language from the epistle this morning, you know, you're not in darkness, you are sons of light. And keep it sons, not children of light, even though that wouldn't be incorrect, because we are sons of the Son, who is the light of the world. The status of sonship comes from him. Paul? Regarding, uh, regarding the uh, first four, the original four of, uh, of number seven, uh, abortion, same-sex marriage, uh, gender re-identification, uh, there's good information on this, both government and medicine uh, keep records on this sort of thing, so probably not like the Puritans of the 1600s, but uh, some. But cohabitation before marriage, uh, uh, what do we have as to how much uh, there is and attitudes towards it uh, uh, just beyond what people might say true or false uh, about the concept? Um, well, I, I'm going to have a, a complete um, study on that topic. This is my, my point in bringing these four up now is not to exhaust them. Oh, very well, but, I can wait. But, but to talk about the commonality of self-centeredness. Also, I'm not, I'm not at this point particularly interested, as we said, in surveys that detract from the word of God. In other words, if it's true according to the survey, or if it's bad according to the survey, that must mean that God's word is, act, is correct. Well, I guess my question would be, is cohabitation surveyable? Is cohabitation what? Surveyable. Well, it's, yes, it is. And I mean, look, divorce, that marriage rates are on the decline. Okay? That's a fact that you can look up in governmental statistics. Does that mean that people aren't hooking up? No but they're going for cohabitation on a grander and grander scale than the, the commitments of legal marriage. So um, for lots of reasons, they do that. But again, I don't want to lose sight of what Joanne said here. The common thread here is the serving of self, one's appetites and desires. This takes us back to then to the idea of covetousness, which is the insistence upon that which God has not given. So it's when looking at the word of God and studying theology, I think we all too often tend to look at the word of God and study theology when it comes to contemporary challenges to the faith in terms of laws. Okay, so show me a law that says cohabitation is sin. Okay, there you've shown me the law, but there's no underpinnings to it. And part of what I wanted to do with the whole study, but then here with this today, is that the departure from 
faith in the God of love is the cause of what is called in the title disordered and destructive influences impact on family, life, and marriage. Okay? Let, let me take it to the absurd. If every woman who ever got an abortion at any age suffered zero psychological um, damage, so, so to speak, from that, it still wouldn't authenticate it as being moral. Do you follow that? So this is what I'm trying to guard against with the idea of, of surveys. But to root our study of the scriptures in the nature of God and the character of the gospel itself is so very important because then we come to realize why it matters. So here again, when it comes to, let's say, living together outside of marriage. Since so many are doing that, and it's so widespread, and it's being, out of fear, ignored by the church, anybody who says, even, I think you should give this a second thought, is immediately labeled as, you know, loveless and judgmental and so forth, okay? So it would be easy, and that, again, going back to the idea of letting laws determine things, as if being a Christian is just all about laws. I want to get married. Are you living together? Yes. No, can't get married here. Go away. Okay. Well, you don't want to bless a fornication union as if that's okay in the eyes of God, so I get that. But how does that help that individual or that couple realize the truth of God's word and the goodness of God's word? Do you, you follow that? Because it was a lot easier 100 years ago. Everybody frowned on that sort of thing. The one flesh union is for marriage. But that ain't so anymore. So there's got to be other arguments laid to bear to help people. Again, that's, now, that doesn't mean everyone will be helped. Uh, it's a risky business to try to teach a sinner the word of God. Risky on the part of the pastor or Christian who is proclaiming or confessing. But it's what love calls us to do, just like Jesus Love compelled him to lay down his life for those who hated his guts. I mean, he could have said, the hell with you. Right? But he didn't. He preached and he taught and he ultimately expended his life for the salvation of those he came to save. All right. So we will go into these theses next time for the lack of, uh, you know, just to say we at least heard one. Number one, faith, and they, they run in progression. So faith in God's sacrificial love in Christ is foundational for a happy, well-adjusted, and fulfilled life in marriage and family because such love is self-giving and sacrificial rather than self-centered and possessive. 
And we'll connect each thesis with some of the verses in the text beforehand. So we'll start out, bang, right with this uh, next week, okay? The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Bring your sheets back. Tuck them in your Bible. Or if you haven't written,